Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, a matter of confidence. Will he confirm whether or not he considers my motion to keep the heat on and take the tax off a confidence vote? As the home oil pause in the carbon tax shaken confidence in the Prime Minister's environmental plan, or just in him. Coming up, we'll talk to our political panel about the carve-out given to households with home oil and how that is affecting Justin Trudeau's leadership. Also... Alberta is already spending millions of dollars fighting Ottawa's proposed clean energy regulations. So how does its government feel about the federal exemption on home oil? We'll speak with the province's environment minister. And... The colonial correctional system does not work for us. Ten years after the Spirit Matters report, why is the rate of Indigenous incarceration higher today than it was ten years ago? This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. Well, the Conservative leader made good on his promise today, tabling a motion to have the three-year pause on home heating oil extended to include all forms of heat. But Pierre Poliev went one step further during question period, challenging the Prime Minister to make the issue a confidence vote on his government. Yesterday, the Prime Minister indicated that he wants to have a carbon tax election on his plan to quadruple the tax to 61 cents a litre on heat, gas and groceries. So will he confirm whether or not he considers my motion to keep the heat on and take the tax off a confidence vote. Mr. Speaker, the leader of the opposition uh, is making a serious mistake if he thinks uh, that Canadians are not concerned about the environment or that Canadians don't know that protecting the environment does go hand in hand with creating good jobs and prosperity for them across the country. Uh, That is a conversation I look forward to continuing to have over the next two years with Canadians. Well, with more, we're now joined by our political panel. Susan Smith is principal with Blue Sky Strategy Group. Tim Powers, the chairman of SEMA Strategies. And Anne McGrath is the national director for the NDP. Hello to the three of you. Hello. 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 So, uh, first question, you know, was it a mistake for Justin Trudeau to introduce uh, this this three-year pause in our carbon tax for home oil eating? Because in many ways, it looks like he's opened up a Pandora's box in terms of the criticism and the asks that he's now getting from so many quarters of the country. Well, the reason he was getting asks and the reason he, the Prime Minister brought in the rebate on home heating oil is because of affordability. And he was hearing from people all over the country. Uh, and, he was, and in particular, the people who'd been hit with the home heating oil bill, which was two to four times more expensive and two to four times more polluting. So he listened. I think the reality is he was damned if he did and he was damned if he didn't. You know, the opposition was up every day screaming about affordability. Uh, Pierre Polyev says, axe the tax, that's his thing. The Prime Minister said we're going to pause the carbon price for families that are hardest hit and also pause it specifically on the, one, the, the highest polluting uh, fuel for home heating. And he was responding to concerns of ordinary Canadians at the kitchen table. So again, damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. I think the bottom line is for the families who uh, are able to better afford their home heating, and all of the rest of the families in the country who have the chance to access uh, heat pumps, um, it, 
it was the right way to go. A bit clunky, uh, but I, th I think bottom line was trying to help people who needed help. Okay, that's what you say the bottom line is. What do you say, Tim? Well, clunky's a polite way of describing a car crash. Uh, and the car didn't need to crash in some ways. Look, uh, the notion of regional variance in policy has been with us since Confederation. And uh, that, on the issue of regional policy variance, that's fine, but they should have started that way. Because coming to this perspective now, after a ton of political pressure, from within their own party, from the four Atlantic premiers, from numerous groups in the region, does look like it's a bit of a craven move by the prime minister to address that public pressure as polls in Atlantic Canada show them in decline. Um, probably good policy because it should have been there in the beginning. We don't know about the political outcomes. Uh, what are the Liberals trying to do here? Well, in every election over the last 20 years, except actually probably, well, it's 30 years ago when Mr. Gretchen had the EI changes, the Liberals have done really well in Atlantic Canada. That is the base of this party, though, in terms of how it goes from east to west. Does this help address the slide? We won't know that until election time, but this was about trying to address this slide while dealing with real challenges of affordability that they should have conceived from the outset. Mm -hmm. And what do you think, a mistake to have done this? I think it's a big mistake. I think that it undermines uh, the key policy uh, uh, plank that this government has, has, has been all about from, from 2015. Like this is, they are the climate change a government they, and, and carbon pricing was a big part of that and I think they've undermined their entire policy platform and their whole raison d'etre in many ways as, as a government. I think it does look like it was responding to political pressures mm -hmm. around poll numbers and seats and those kinds of things and even if Goody Hutchings hadn't come out and said you know if you want things like this you should elect more liberals you people in Alberta and Saskatchewan and Manitoba. But even if she hadn't said that, it was so obviously uh, responding to incredible pressure from the Atlantic MPs. And, and, and one way that I think you know that is that they didn't, they didn't signal it in any way. There was no preconditioning whatsoever. And uh, they didn't seem prepared for the response that they got. So, uh, and normally if you're gonna do something that's that you know, potentially problematic, you will have stress tested it a bit. You will have given people a heads up, you will have started to lay the groundwork, and you will have uh, responses to the uh, predictable questions. Yeah, and I think that I think that's a big one. The fact that they were struggling for for a coherent and consistent response to the criticisms that people were coming out. But you know, was there any way to make this more fair? I, I hear what you're saying about undermining. Yes, there was. The, okay. There what was. I mean, our proposal, which we have been out on for quite some time now, which is to take the GST uh, off all home heat, all home heating. Uh, I think that's a good policy response. We've also talked about tax, the, taxing the windfall profits of the big uh, oil and gas companies. That's money that you could put into things like heat pumps and other home heating uh, issues. And and I think that I think that it's a problem that it is so clearly. Um, uh, just for one region of the country, no matter what people say, um, it was directed at the Atlantic. Fair enough, they had an issue there and it was a problem, but I think that, that coming out with a policy shift that's that big, that is clearly designed for one particular region of the country and is clearly designed to address uh, plunging poll numbers, it's problematic. Mm -hmm. yeah. What do you think, Susan, any way to have made it fair? Because, you know, to Anne's point, this is, at the end of the day, being seen to benefit Atlantic Canadians more than anyone else. Well, I think that what the numbers show is that disproportionately Atlantic Canadians are on 
uh, uh -huh. home heating oil because they don't have access to natural gas and other things. They don't have another choice. So that was that's why there are so many people on home heating oil. There are people in the rest of, the rest of the country who also have that same pause applied to them, but in some of those cases, they have the choice to do natural gas. Look, the, as I said before, it's an affordability issue. It was clunky. <clears throat> the bottom line is you have to help people who really need help to afford to heat their homes in the wintertime. <clears throat> Sorry, every other every other province that is signed on to the Climate Accord has the ability, people have the ability to access heat pump rebates, rebates and other things. So that is fair across the country. It's fair if you're on home heating oil, if you're on natural gas, you're, you're polluting less, your costs are less. Um, and so it all shakes out in the washes. Tim points out, we aren't going to know for till two years from now. And I think the bottom line for people is, can they afford to pay their bills right at this moment in time? And come election, it won't matter if it was uh, who brought it in or who didn't bring it in. And Polyev wants everybody to talk about that in two years from now. It was an issue today for people. And so the Trudeau government did something about it. Except it's more acute today. That is true. But the fact that 30% of Atlantic Canadians have been heating their homes with home heating oil didn't start yesterday or the day it was announced. That's been the case for a very long time and at the case of the inception of these particular programs. So for the Prime Minister to wrap it in, oh, I'm doing so good for these people. Now, you knew this in the beginning. You knew this in the beginning. You should have had a regional approach to these things. But to your question to Anne, which I think uh, I just want to add to it, are there other things they could have done? Um, they could have perhaps to have equality and fairness across the board, and different opposition party of parties have argued this, could have put a one-year pause on collecting carbon tax uh, revenues. There are things they could have done if they truly wanted fairness and parity around all of this. What is fascinating for me, and I agree fully with Anne on this, is this the beginning of the end, despite the fact that the Prime Minister says that it isn't? He, was, he had every right to bring this policy forward. He had every right to push it and make it a legacy item. You diminish your credibility significantly, not only with the voters you're trying to appease, but with those who've been with you for a long time, when you say this, I'm going to be the climate prime minister, and you back away from your central policy. Start to back away from Yeah, well, but I don't think he's backed quickly, away fundamentally quickly. on mm -hmm. it. There's still a tax on, on the heavy emitters. There's still, it, there's still a point, that it's, the point is to try and incent behavioral change, mm -hmm. and that hasn't changed fundamentally. It's incenting behavioral change for Atlantic Canadians to, to convert to heat pumps. Mm -hmm. The goal is to reduce climate. You couldn't factor in the costs that were gonna come about as a result of a pandemic and everything else. There are regions of the country that have been hurt harder than others, mm -hmm. but the reality is it's the home heating oil, it's a heavy, it's a heavy pollution emitter itself, and it reduces consumption. Okay, but you know, without a doubt, we're seeing a hit on the prime minister here, right? I mean, the liberal numbers are bleeding, including Atlantic Canada, and when the pollsters talk about it, they say, you know, it's very much tied into leadership. So, does this put added pressure on Trudeau to consider stepping aside? Because we did hear from a liberal senator giving an interview saying, you know, perhaps it's by February there should be a walk in the snow for Justin Trudeau as there was for his father. What type of pressure does this create on Trudeau and his leadership? Tim, I'll get you to start that one. Well, I don't know if it's just this one policy, but look, whether you're Justin Trudeau or Pierre Polly of Stephen Harper, you, if you're going to be good at what you do, and the Prime Minister has been good because he's had three wins and he's been over eight years, you do have to constantly assess where do you stand and can you win again? Uh, and I think he's doing that assessment. He would, he may say he's not, and all leaders will say they're not until they actually are. Of course, he's doing that assessment. 
Um, is it there more pressure now? Perhaps. There's probably more caucus pressure than there has ever been. He's probably bought some time with his caucus for the moment, but I think come January, February, if he has decided that he hasn't decided, people will be looking for direction on where he's going to go. So yeah, the pressure is probably the most intense it has ever been for him to do some serious reflection on his leadership. Mm -hmm. And what do you say to that? Well, he's, he's been saying uh, for some time now that he has decided. And, uh, and, and I actually take Kometa's word on that. I think he has decided and he's planning to, to run again. That doesn't mean that, that the pressure isn't intensifying yeah. uh, for, for, for a change. I, I'm not sure if he is going to respond to that or not, because um, I don't see many alternatives, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to let you answer that, but before we get to that, I do want to play a clip for all of you, because uh, Trudeau was asked about Senator Percy uh, Down. Take a listen to what he had to say to, to that. He's calling on you to step down Sorry, for that? Senator Down, a former of Former staffer for Jean-Pierre oh, Jean oh, yeah. How's he yeah. doing? He wants you to quit. Oh, wow. Well. I, I uh, wish him all the best in the work that he's doing. Merci beaucoup, tout le monde. Okay, so that is how he answered that criticism. Uh, do you think this is creating pressure, though, for the Prime Minister to reconsider whether or not he needs to leave as leader? I think the Prime Minister is very funny there, basically conveying, who, who is that you're talking about? Not I.e., that's not someone I talk to every day, so it's clearly a speculative piece all on his own. I have lived through the days of Martin Crutchet, <laughs> Liberal Party being rent at the seams. Um, yeah. There were, Tim, you lived through the uh, Stockwell Day, Preston Manning, others, parties <laughs> being rent at the seams. I don't see that in the Liberal Party. I think the Prime Minister signaled he's running again. Uh, if and when he decides he's going to go, it will, he will decide that on his own. There is no one pushing him out the door. Okay, well, we're watching the numbers without the doubt. A lot of people are watching the numbers, so we will convene and talk about that again. But for now, Susan, Tim, and Anne, thank you very much for the time. Thank, thank you. you. So ahead of that exchange that we played for you, that came from this afternoon's question period, Pierre Poliev was also in the comments earlier today tabling the motion to extend the exemption on the carbon tax. Take a listen. If the Prime Minister has now caved on the carbon tax for those eating, heating with, with oil, then he ought to be intellectually consistent and do it for all forms of heating, for all Canadians. Well, joining us now is Alberta's Minister for the Environment, Rebecca Schultz. Minister, really good to see you. Thank you for being here. Yeah, it's great to join you this morning. Listen, I want to begin uh, with Pierre Polyev. Obviously, he's standing in the House today introducing this motion that would extend essentially a tax cut to all forms of uh, heating in the country. What's your reaction to that? You know, we just introduced a motion in the Alberta legislature the other day for the federal government uh, to essentially get rid of the carbon tax. I mean, what we're seeing is the federal liberals uh, allowing a carve out for one area of the country uh, and not really uh, respecting the fact that the carbon tax is driving up the cost of living in every province across our country. Um, and this is completely unfair. So we were asking for unanimous support in our house uh, for that. I'm, I'm happy to see that happening uh, in Ottawa today as well. Now, you know, I, I, of course, the federal government has been asked about this. And to that, I do want to raise a couple of points here, because first, uh, when you speak to liberals, they argue not all decisions will benefit all parts of the country equally. For example, the federal government uh, investing in the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the uh, expansion, 
And they also say that giving people a break on home heating oil is really about giving, you know, Canadians, whether they be in Atlantic Canada or elsewhere, the opportunity to switch to a cleaner source of energy. How do you respond to those pushbacks? So I would say, first of all, provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan, they don't have an option either. Our option is natural gas. And natural gas is actually lower emissions than a lot of the heating oils that we're talking about. So, you know, when I look at the, the incredible affordability pressures that Canadians are seeing across the country. We have heard this for a number of years. Certainly, we've heard it in Alberta uh, since the carbon tax was introduced. The consumer carbon tax is not reducing emissions. It is driving up the cost of every aspect of our day-to-day -day lives, from groceries to gas to our utility bills. And I think at a time like that, when essentially Prime Minister Trudeau is, is admitting that, you know, this is because it's about affordability and the high cost of fuel, uh, we are seeing those high costs across the country. And it is wildly unfair to allow a carve out for one area of the country and, and not the rest. And I mean, you know, we're happy for Atlantic Canada the Canadians to receive that break. What we're saying is we see a lot of unilateral decisions being made by the federal government. And again, we're, we're asking for that fair treatment. Okay, you, you mentioned affordability. The federal government also points to, to the federal backstop because under that scheme, as you know, uh, as they say, all revenues collected for the carbon tax is returned to Albertans uh, with, and this is, is a quote to you, with all but the wealthiest 20% getting more in rebates than they actually pay out. You know, it's still something that we hear every single day. It is absolutely driving up, of course, the cost of utilities like we're talking about today. Um, but given where it's applied, I mean, we hear it from school divisions who are concerned about the, their increased budgets because, again, of the carbon tax on fuel. We're seeing it on groceries because of it being applied throughout the supply chain. This is absolutely ridiculous. It has an impact on everyday families, on seniors who are on a fixed income. And quite frankly, I think we've heard loud and clear from Canadians that they just don't want to see this carbon tax in place. I think what we've seen here, quite frankly, is, you know, frenetic and panicked policy by a government that is is seeing their popularity tank in the polls. It, it doesn't seem to make any sense. And, you know, what we're saying is, to be fair across the country, that they should allow uh, other provinces and other forms of heating uh, to, to have the same reprieve. Okay, so how do you accomplish two things, though? Because when you poll Canadians, uh, yes, affordability is a top issue, but the environment remains a top issue as well. How do you address both affordability and essentially make environmental gains without something like the carbon tax? You know, we are making environmental gains. And to talk specifically about Alberta, you know, there's a couple of examples that I use. First of all, uh, we've reduced emissions in our electricity sector by 53% since 2005. I, again, that does have a cost. I mean, Albertans are still going to be paying for the next number of years, $100 million every single year uh, to, to help with that transition off of, of coal-fired generation. That's $100 million a year that could go to healthcare, to education, to helping people with utility bills. Um, and, and so there is a very real cost to that. Now, when we look at methane emissions, for example, if we had done things the way that the federal government wanted to do them, it would have been more costly and less effective. We've been, we are actually ahead of schedule. Our goal is 2025 to reduce 45% uh, of methane emissions reductions. We are at 44%. Those numbers were as of last year, so we're well on track. And again, we wouldn't have gotten there if we had followed the federal government's approach. I think when we look at things like energy development, electricity, 
provinces know best how to manage those resources. Obviously, they're areas of provincial jurisdiction. And so, you know, I, I think fundamentally it comes down to the approach. We can make sure that Canadians have access to affordable and reliable energy and power and still reduce emissions. Alberta is showing that you can absolutely do both. Okay, I only have about 30 seconds, but I do have to ask you, because we already heard the Prime Minister say that there will be no further exemptions. So, so where do you go from here? As you said, you, you, you passed uh, your own or, or introduced your own legislation, your own statements in your own legislature, but where do you go from here if the Prime Minister is saying no? You know, that's something we're going to have to look at. I mean, over the last number of weeks, we've had a campaign uh, encouraging Canadians to tell the feds that their clean electricity regulations are unacceptable and that, you know, Canadians are not okay with increasing costs and uh, risky reliability in our power grids. Uh, you know, I think that they're going to continue to hear from Canadians. And I would encourage the federal government, a government who has a responsibility to represent all Canadians, not just those who voted for them, uh, to listen and to use common sense over ideology. Minister Rebecca Schultz, appreciate the time. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. Well, the man who watches over Corrections Canada is calling for a huge change. Concerned about the over-representation of Indigenous people in the prison system, Ivan Zinger wants the Correctional Service of Canada to get a change in attitude by addressing a culture that he says is steeped in colonialism and devolving more power to Indigenous communities. Take a listen to the reaction his recommendations got. Our position has been and continues to be that upstream investments um, in Inuit and in Inuit socioeconomic equity in this country will lead to healthier, prosperous, safer communities and uh, decrease the rate of um, representation in federal corrections. The lack of long-term funding, um, sustainable funding, must be remedied in order to address the ongoing representation of Indigenous peoples in the criminal justice system by Canada's federal, provincial and territorial governments. A distinctions-based national Indigenous decarceration strategy co-developed with First Nations is absolutely needed. The immediate action must be taken to address the over-incarceration of First Nations people or the problem will only continue to get worse. We can't afford to come back 10 years from now to hear the crisis situation has only gotten worse again. Well, joining us now is Ivan Zinger, Correctional Investigator of Canada. Mr. Zinger, thank you for being here. Thank you, Michael, for inviting me. Well, it's such an important report and table to Parliament. And really what we're talking about here is it's almost an update of the 2013 Spirit Matters report. And in those 10 years, Indigenous representation of those in corrections, it hasn't decreased at all. Talk to us about the numbers and what you're finding. Well, the overrepresentation is getting worse and worse, uh, actually, you know, for the last 30 years, actually. Um, but certainly uh, with things like uh, commitments uh, from Canada to try to address it um, uh, through, for example, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, we've seen that uh, it hasn't uh, happened. It actually got worse, uh, increasingly worse. So when we look at our, uh, the data that we looked in 2013, the incarceration, uh, the overrepresentation was um, 23% for the federal, uh, uh, you know, federal incarcerated population. And we went from 23 to 32 now. And for women, the situation is even worse 
because we went from actually 32% to 50%. So that means that half of the uh, women incarcerated population at the federal level is indigenous. Well, so as you say, numbers are getting worse. And you do, when you talk about your report, you point to a number of different challenges. So I'm going to break them up a little bit. And I want to begin with the Pathways program, because you write about shortcomings in that program. Because here we have something that was created. It's meant to improve the numbers, help rehabilitate more successfully and better Indigenous populations in prison right now. And they're doing this by pursuing a traditional health path. But what's happened with Pathways? Because that isn't bearing out the fruit that you were hoping for. Well, I, I think part of the problem with Pathways is that it's, uh, uh, it's very selective. And the initiative only reaches out about 8% of the incarcerated Indigenous population, which is about, you know, uh, there are, are currently about 4,200. So only about 350 uh, are allowed, and those units are not even uh, fully occupied, uh, to take part in this. So the criteria, the selection criteria, they're always looking for the most compliant, committed, um, and, and they are offering them, yes, uh, uh, sort of uh, enhanced services and programming that is more tailored to the unique needs of Indigenous people. Uh, while 90% of uh, uh, or more of the indigenous incarcerated population uh, cannot access those cultural ceremonial, uh, you know, healing path um, uh, intervention, which makes it also problematic because, you know, it, uh, uh, accessing these things is a right, not just a, a privilege. Um, uh, and it also, you know, uh, gives you the sense that in order to get out of prison, if you're indigenous, you have to follow that pathway route, uh, which may eventually transfer you to a healing lodge. Uh, so you got a, a quick exit, uh, which isn't always the case, while everybody else lingers in, in prison. And, and that's what the statistics are, are demonstrating, is that the, gross major the vast majority of uh, Indigenous uh, people incarcerated in corrections leave at two-thirds of their sentence. Mm -hmm. and, and so pathways being a challenge, you also talk about challenges uh, with elders, not enough of them, uh, with healing lodges, not enough given to the community where they might be helpful. And to all of that, you also talk about how there's still a colonial attitude within Corrections Canada that ultimately needs to be addressed for any of this to actually be successful. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so over the years, you know, my, my office has been operating now for 50 years and we've made uh, in the past about 70 recommendations to try to push corrections to do better in this, in, in this uh, uh, area. And now with the new report table, we've got another, you know, dozen recommendations um, and uh, corrections has simply not been able to respond uh, positively positively. Um, and uh, I think there's uh, an awful of self-interest and, uh, uh, and inertia within the, the, that department. Um, and the performance in terms of what corrections can actually influence um, when it comes to Indigenous people is uh, terrible. And it has remained terrible for the last 10 years, but it even goes further back. So Indigenous people, you know, serve, as we said, uh, lengthier uh, times uh, behind bars than uh, uh, non-Indigenous people. They're more likely to be 
uh, in a maximum security where there are fewer services. They're more likely to be uh, subject to use of force, more likely to be um, uh, placed in one of those uh, new administrative segregation uh, um, cells, um, and more likely to be involuntary transferred, more likely to self-harm, more likely to uh, attempt suicide, more likely to uh, um, uh, to have their parole either suspended or revoked, and more likely to s recidivate. Mm -hmm. uh, and that recidivism is key because uh, if they recidivate, then the uh, overrepresentation uh, that's their contribution to uh, trying to uh, uh, lower that uh, uh, recidivism um, and that overrepresentation. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just not uh, not working, and the approach is unfortunately. Uh, not the right one. Well, something to consider as uh, this country continues to talk about reconciliation and of course many people watching the correction services and justice in this country. Uh, table to the Parliament, we'll see where it goes. Uh, Ivan Singer, thank you for the time. Thank you very much. And that is our program for this Thursday. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. I'm Michael Serapio. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow night. But up next, Esteve Jean avec L'Essentiel.